Imagine yourself sitting this morning, not in these comfortable pews in 21st century America, uh, with a complete Bible on your lap, or maybe even in digital format on a tablet, but in the home of one of your fellow believers 19 and a half centuries ago, seated maybe on a couch or maybe on the living room floor, perhaps with a copy or two of the Old Testament between all of you, and with most of the books of the New Testament not yet written. But on this particular Sunday, one of the elders stands up before the gathered assembly and holds in one hand a small parchment rolled up and announces that he has in hand a letter freshly received from the pen of the Apostle Paul, from the man who once persecuted Christians to the death, but who met the Lord Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus and not only lived to tell about it, but lived to proclaim Christ's good news in city after city all over the Mediterranean world in which you live. Indeed, you would remember that it was Paul who had first proclaimed that good news of Jesus in your city and who had planted this very church gathering in which you now sit. What a treat to have your former missionary and indeed one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, a man sent out as the very emissary of Christ himself. What a privilege to have him pen and send a letter to your church to be read aloud in the Sunday gathering. What a memorable Sunday this was going to be. But if you had been in one of the churches of Galatia, back in the mid-first century, you might not have been nearly as grateful as you ought to have been. Because as we open the book of Galatians ourselves in the coming weeks, and I'll invite you to turn there with me now if you haven't done so, as we open the book of Galatians ourselves together in the weeks that are ahead, one of the things we're going to discover is that though Paul had planted these churches to whom he writes this letter, And though he was perhaps the first person ever to speak to them the name of Jesus, and though the people now seated in the Sunday gathering had believed on that name with joy, now it appears that they've grown a little skeptical of the apostle. Now they have encountered some new teachers who have improved upon Paul's message, so they think. And now the apostle, therefore, has a grievance with you in Galatia, both about your treatment of his ministry and even more so your treatment of the gospel itself. And so, having gotten wind of the latest doings in Galatia, Paul sets pen to paper to clear the air with this church and to bring his disciples back to the true gospel. Which gospel the Galatians, perhaps without fully recognizing what they were doing, had begun to abandon. And the letter is a vehement letter, as Kendall Easley describes it. Paul is clearly disturbed at these folks and at their falling away from the truth that he sees in these, his former pupils in the gospel. He's concerned for the very safety of their souls. You foolish Galatians, he says to them in chapter 3, who has bewitched you? You are espousing beliefs, he says in chapter 2, 21, that nullify the grace of God and that render superfluous the cross of Christ. You have been severed from Christ, he says in chapter 5. You have fallen from grace. And if these things are true, Paul simply must write 
For the good of Galatian souls, he must take up his pen and say hard things to them. And for the good of their own souls, the Galatians must listen. Unimpressed and unexcited as they may now be to receive a letter from this man from whose theology they've begun to move on, the Galatians must hear Paul out. And I hope that you are moved to hear him out too in the weeks that are ahead as we discover why it is that Paul is so intense in this letter and why the beliefs the Galatians were beginning to espouse would sever them from Jesus. It's quite an interesting letter. So let's begin, shall we, this morning by having a look just at the first five verses of the letter. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Father, I pray that you would impart grace and peace to us this morning as we consider these words from the Apostle and that we would ascribe to you glory forevermore. Help us now to listen, to believe to that end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we would do with any letter arriving in our mailbox, whether in the first century or the 21st, let's make sure we understand, first of all, who wrote the letter. So if you're keeping track this morning, this will be our first main heading, namely the author, very simply. The author. Who wrote this letter, this epistle, as we sometimes call the New Testament letters? Well, in characteristic fashion, at least for Paul's day, the letter opens with just the information that we're seeking. The author's name is the very first word of the letter, isn't it? Paul. Now, we've said a few things about this man already, among the most important of which is that he had not always been a Christian preacher, this Paul. He'd not always been a missionary. He'd not always been a church planter. So, passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, as a younger man, he had been very passionate for something else. Paul, as a younger man, had been a kind of religious terrorist, you might say, rounding up Christians, trying to lure and coax blasphemies out of them, and hurting some of them to their death, simply because of their faith in Christ. And there are men like Paul doing the same things to Christians even today which just gives us reason as an aside to pray for our brothers and sisters, particularly in the Muslim world. Paul was a religious terrorist, a murderer of the saints of God. But of course, he did not remain that way because there was this marvelous encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus when Paul was on his way to arrest another group of Christians and Paul was never the same. And soon, as he reminds the Galatians here in chapter 1, verse 23, soon the message began to be whispered among the churches that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. It's an amazing testimony. Paul had become a trophy of God's grace, and he had become a messenger of that grace as well. 
preaching all over the Mediterranean, the northern Mediterranean coast, from Israel, across modern-day Turkey, over to Greece, eventually to Rome, and with designs ongoing even as far as Spain. And concerning that preaching and those missions, Paul is careful to say here in verse 1 that he is an apostle. Paul, an apostle. And what is an apostle? Well, in Christian vocabulary, the word apostle has, rightly so, come to have a very specialized meaning. We generally refer to apostles as those who were the official and the approved first messengers of Jesus, among whom Paul was one. So that there aren't apostles today in the same sense that there were in those days. So apostle has that meaning for us. But the Greek word in its basic meaning refers simply to one who is sent. One who is sent. And so the apostles were ones who were sent directly by Christ. And Paul wants the Galatians to remember and to realize that he is an apostle. To understand that he has been sent. He is not a self-appointed minister like we sometimes run across today and which I'm sure existed back then as well. Men who just feel that they're called by God and they begin to, to preach without being sent. Paul has been sent. He is an apostle. He is one who has been sent. And in verse 1, he wants the Galatians to know particularly that he has not been sent from men and that he has not even been sent through the agency of man. Did you see that? An apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man. In other words, Paul is not serving as a spokesperson for some Christian headquarters somewhere. He's not merely delivering to the Galatians, nor was he sent out to them by some other person to deliver their message. He's not bringing the doctrines of other men to Galatia. Paul, an apostle not sent from men, not a messenger speaking a message from people. And then when he says that he was not even sent through the agency of man, I think what he's doing is reminding the Galatians, not only am I not delivering a man's message, but I'm actually delivering the message given by Christ, but he's also telling them by the phrase, not through the agency of man, that even when he was sent out to deliver the message of Christ, he was not even sent by the decision of men, ultimately. In other words, it's not that Paul was ordained to the gospel ministry like I was, or like his protege Timothy was, by team of elders or deacons. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's how all men should be commissioned now that the apostles, who specifically were commissioned by Christ, are gone from the scene. All men should be sent to proclaim not the message of man, but the message of Christ, and yet they should be sent through the agency of man, through the laying on of hands by the church's elders. That's the normal practice. So that a person can be God's messenger and yet be sent through the agency through the means of men, a church and its elders seeking God's will and seeing the call of God on a man's life. But Paul is reminding the Galatians that he himself was not sent by God in that normal way. Paul was not commissioned by a body of elders. He was commissioned, he was ordained to the gospel ministry by Christ himself. Not even through the agency of man, but directly by Christ 
on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus face to face. And so this is not merely a letter to Galatia from a legitimate and godly minister. This is not a letter to them from John Piper or Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther or St. Augustine. These were all God's servants too, sent from God through the agency of men who recognized their calling. But Paul was sent out directly by Christ himself, which is why this letter is in the Bible. But Luther's commentary on it, which is marvelous... And my sermons, which will be average, will not be in the Bible. They will remain merely human writings. And that's also why the Galatians and we following behind them need to listen to the words of this letter as listening to the very utterances of God. Because that is what we are listening to. Not merely somebody explaining the utterances of God, which is what I'm doing, but these words penned by the apostle are the very words of God himself. Not just through a rightly ordained preacher, but from one of Jesus' very own apostles, from Paul, an apostle not sent from, man nor, from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And if you're wondering why I'm stressing this, it's because this is a big deal in understanding this letter, which we'll see as we move along in the weeks ahead. Paul comes back to this theme of his divine appointment as a preacher at much greater length, beginning in verse 11 of this chapter, and dwells on it for some time. And the way he dwells on it leaves you with the impression that what was happening in Galatia was not only that the churches were beginning to reject or add on to the gospel that Paul had preached to them, but that perhaps one of their reasons or maybe one of their excuses for doing so was that they had told themselves or been told by their new spiritual gurus that Paul was just preaching a human message, that he was just regurgitating somebody else's party line, that his message was, simply put, man-made, which incidentally is one of the lies of which Satan convinces people still today. Several years ago, I was in conversation with another pastor in the area. He was a kindly man, a gracious man in many ways, a man who claimed to be a Christian, but he was a man who believed and preached a very different gospel than what is to be found in the Scriptures. And so I was trying to show him that what he believed and what I believed are actually two different faiths. Not two versions of Christianity, but two totally different religions. And I quoted something in this conversation from one of Paul's letters to make my point. And his response was, oh, well, that's what Paul says. That's what Paul says, as if Paul's words didn't count as much, as if Galatians and Ephesians and Romans and so on were not just as inspired by God as the red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was thinking of Paul's message as merely the thoughts of a man. And so evidently were the Galatians, which may have been one reason they so easily abandoned Paul's gospel. But you see, it wasn't merely Paul's gospel. Paul did not send himself. Paul did not proclaim his own message or the message of any man, nor was he even ordained by a legitimate body of elders. He was sent and delivered the message of Christ himself and of God the Father as he tells us there in verse 1, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God 
the Father. And that is why he can be so adamant that if the Galatians reject his message, they're rejecting Christ himself. And why we can say even today, if we reject Paul's message, we're rejecting Christ himself. Because it's not Paul's message, it's that of Christ. We'll see much more of this in the weeks ahead. But for now, know and note well that the author of this letter is Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And then just note very briefly before we leave this first point about the author, that the the author is not alone. The author is not Alone, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. I'm writing to you in my name and I'm writing to you along with all the brethren who are with me. Paul was not sent by men. He was not ordained by men, but he almost invariably worked with other men always going out on his missionary journeys as part of a team and only seldom striking out on his own along the way. Now, that's not the main emphasis of this letter, so we won't dwell on it, but it is worth noticing as we think about elders leading a church and families going out to the mission field, Paul wrote this letter and made it his habit to have other brethren working with him in verse 2 in his gospel endeavors. So there's a little thumbnail sketch of our author, but let's move on, as is always helpful to do when reading a collection of someone else's letters. Let's move on and find out a little something about the folks to whom Paul was writing. So first, the author, and then second, the recipients. The recipients. Each of Paul's 13 letters, you may have noticed, is named for its recipients, So that the book of Romans was written to the church at Rome and Ephesians to the church at Ephesus, Titus to a man called Titus, and so on. And so it is also with this book of Galatians. It has been so named because it was written, as we read in the latter part of verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. And where was Galatia? Well, this would be a good time to keep your finger in Galatians 1 and then flip over to the maps in the back of your Bible or in the back of the Pew Bible, and find a map of Paul's journeys. In the Pew Bible, it's map 9, or if you have a smartphone, you might just Google map of Paul's journeys. And if you're looking at a map of Paul's journeys, or if you pull one up later in the day, you'll find that Paul's missionary journeys all began over on the right side of the page or of the screen, and that they worked their way west across the northern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And early on, along the routes of those journeys, over on the eastern half of the map, and a little way north of the coastline, you'll see these cities moving from east to west. Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. So again, look at the northeast corner of the map and then begin to move west and those should be some of the first cities you see Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. I hope you found them. They're almost due north of the island of Cyprus in the northeastern quadrant of the Mediterranean Sea if you see that there. And it was in these cities located in what is today central Turkey 
that the churches were located to whom Paul penned this letter. This is the region, and these are the churches of Galatia. Now, you can read about how the gospel came to these cities and how the churches were planted there in the 13th and 14th chapters of the book of Acts. But the short version, which I told you before, is that Paul himself visited each of these cities in the region of Galatia and preached the gospel there where Christ had evidently not yet been named. But it's interesting, over in Galatians chapter 4, reading about why it was that Paul ended up coming to this Galatian region in the first place. Because he says in chapter 4, verse 13, that, quote, it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. You see that in Galatians 4.13? It was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Now, what does that mean? Well, apparently it means that somehow Paul ended up in Galatia because he was sick. And that having ended up there on account of a bodily illness, he went ahead and preached the gospel while he was there. That's what Christians should do, isn't it? You weren't planning on being in the hospital. You weren't planning on sitting in the dentist chair. You weren't planning on talking to that auto mechanic. But maybe while you're there, God will give you an opportunity to speak for Jesus. And that's how Paul and the gospel came to Galatia. Paul ended up there because he was sick and he used that opportunity to proclaim Christ in Galatia. Now, if you ask, why would a sick man end up in Galatia? What about Paul's sickness would have driven him to travel to this specific geographic region to have gotten off of his normal plan and gone north? The most popular theory, turning back to your maps for a moment if you want, the most popular theory is that down on the coastal lowlands to the south, on his first missionary journey, Paul may have contracted malaria. And then gone up into the considerably higher elevations in the region of Galatia for his health. Now that's just a theory, of course. Paul doesn't tell us exactly what his sickness was and why it brought him to Galatia. But it's a good theory, I think. And so the picture is something like this. Whether it was malaria or otherwise, Paul has gotten ill on his first missionary journey. And the illness is serious enough that whether for altitude or for some other geographic region, he's gone off his planned route. He stopped his planned missionary travels and gone north into Galatia to convalesce, much like someone with a lung condition might go to Arizona today for the relief of the dry air. And as a result of Paul's illness, as a result of the monkey wrench thrown into his travel plans, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra and Derby get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And isn't God merciful? Isn't He wise? Doesn't He cause all things to work together for good, such that something like your malaria or your child's broken bone or the death of a loved one may be the very place where God opens up the gates of paradise for someone who would not have otherwise heard the good news of Jesus? Don't begrudge your bodily illnesses or the other inconveniences of life that derail your plans and set you down in places you never thought you would be. Because if you'll redeem those opportunities, you may be able someday to say to someone who has become to you as dear as life itself, it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. It was because of a broken transmission that I preached the gospel to you the first time. 
It was because of a flat tire. It was because of a death in my family that I preached the gospel to you the first time. It was because of a bunch of red tape paperwork that I came into your office that day and preached the gospel to you the first time. God is always at work, and we should be working with him in all circumstances to bring the gospel to those who need it. So then, we've thought about the author of Galatians, and we've thought about its recipients, and even how God marvelously brought the two of them together. But then let's notice in the third place the greeting. The greeting. It's standard fare for the apostle to begin his letters with a a brief Christian salutation, a greeting, a blessing is really what it amounts to. And we find the same thing here, beginning in verse 3. Paul doesn't just dive in right away to the heavy subject matter of this letter, but he first reminds his readers that his wish for them is God's grace and God's peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Grace and peace. Paul begins every one of his 13 letters by wishing these two things upon his readers somewhere in the first few verses of the epistle. Grace and peace. But even though Paul uses them 13 times in 13 letters, they're not throwaway words the way that we might feel compelled to begin a letter or an email with something cordial but perfunctory like, hope you're well. Or how are you? Paul is not writing for himself, remember. He's not simply repeating the company line either. Paul is speaking as the messenger of the living God, of the risen Christ. And so Paul is not throwing away words. He's not engaging in mere religious small talk here. These words, grace to you and peace, and then all that follow them carry weight These are the blessings that Paul honestly wishes for his readers, for his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And these are the blessings that the Holy Spirit who drove Paul's quill or pen intends for us, God's people today. Grace and peace. And that word grace is especially important as we consider the beef that Paul has with the theological tinkering that's been going on in Galatia. Because... As we heard earlier from chapter 2, verse 21, the new teaching that was making the rounds was actually a teaching that nullified grace. A teaching that made void the very grace that Paul is talking about here in verse 3. The false teachers that had infiltrated the church were teaching something that would undercut this precious doctrine that we are saved by grace, that we are saved as a free gift. Not based on our works, not based on our religious hoop jumping, but based on the finished work of Christ and imputed to us as a gift of grace. That was what was going on in Galatia. And it was deadly serious, and it's deadly serious when it happens today. I won't go into great detail on it today because we're going to linger on this issue a great deal in the weeks that are ahead. But let it suffice to say that the churches in Galatia were beginning to listen to some teachers who were advocating that what the Galatians really needed in order to be really right with God was not simply the work of Christ on their behalf, but their own religious custom keeping as well. 
In order to be really righteous in God's sight, these Gentiles needed not only to trust in Jesus, but they also needed to undertake all the rites and ceremonies of the laws of Moses. And so salvation, according to them, was achieved by Christ, yes, but also, at least partly, by me. And that's not grace, is it? It is, rather, a system of merit, which was not even required of the Old Testament saints in order to be counted righteous in God's sight. And so Paul's combating of this heresy forms the real thrust of this letter, the real meat of Paul's quarrel with the Galatians and with those who are leading them astray. These men were not preaching, and the Galatians were no longer believing in salvation by grace, salvation as a free gift. And so in noticing Paul's opening salutation and how he begins every one of his letters with it, grace to you, in noticing that he begins every letter wishing this free gift, this grace upon his readers, we have a little head start in understanding what's important to Paul, what lies at the center of his gospel, and what's going on in this letter, why he's so adamant in his tone, grace to you. This is the, the Apostle's message. Grace to you and peace. Peace. The result of God's grace, the result of being counted righteous in his sight as a gift, is not simply, to borrow from J.I. Packer, it's not simply that we're right in God's courtroom, but also that we're right with God relationally. The way Packer says it is this. Some of you may have seen this quote this week on challies.com. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. Or to think about it in the terminology of Galatians, it's not just that God's grace gives us right standing with God legally. That's true. But His grace also results in a relationship of peace with God. Relationally. Grace to you and Peace. And I wonder if you have that peace with God. If you can call him Father, as Paul does in verse 3. Such peace with God does not come as a result of jumping through religious hoops, as the Galatians were being told. Nor does it come even by doing your best to obey God's moral law, which is still in place for us, but which has never been since the fall a way of salvation. Peace with God and peace in your own conscience about God is granted as a gift. It is granted by grace to all those who will simply trust not in their own works, not in their own merits, not in their own religion, but in the work and the merit of Christ. Which is why Paul says what he says in verse 3. Not grace to you and peace by means of circumcision. That's what the Galatian heresy teachers were saying, grace to you in peace by means of circumcision. Nor does he say grace to you in peace by means of your baptism. Grace to you in peace by keeping the Ten Commandments. Grace to you in peace if you help old ladies across the street and are a good citizen. No, no. Grace to you and peace from God. From God, not from you. And from the Lord Jesus Christ, not from you. You don't earn peace with God. It comes from Jesus the Son who gave himself for our sins, verse 4a. And it comes from God the Father who raised him from the dead, verse 1. And whose will it was, verse 4b, to send his Son into the world to save you. 
If peace could come, as the false teachers of Galatia would have it, by means of circumcision, or by means of keeping the Jewish festivals, or really by any other effort at keeping God's law, whether civil, ceremonial, or moral, if we could have peace with God by means of our own efforts, then Christ wouldn't have needed to do what Paul says he did in verse 4. He wouldn't have needed to give himself for our sins. If we could have peace with God on our own, But he gave himself for our sins. He died upon the cross for our transgressions. First of all, because we haven't done the things that we ought to do according to God's law. And second, because even if we should start doing them now, there's no way all of our rights can ever make up for our wrongs. Only blood can do that. The wages of sin is not a certain number of Hail Marys. The wages of sin is not a certain number of Bible chapters read in your quiet time. The wages of sin is not a certain amount of getting back in church. The wages of sin is not a certain number of weeks perfectly keeping the Ten Commandments. The wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. Either your death or Christ's on your behalf. And so your peace with God, your escape, verse 4, from this present evil age, and your escape ultimately from hell, must be a gift. By grace. And praise God it is. Praise God that these letters all begin with grace to you. I had a dear friend who, from what I could tell, hadn't spent very much of his life in church. So he didn't know much of the Bible, understandably. But he told me that one verse he knew, one verse he remembered from Bible school when he was a little boy was Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. And I'm so glad he knew that verse. But I had to tell him one day, did you know the verse doesn't stop there? Did you know that while Romans 6.23, which you learned as a boy, assuredly says that the wages of sin is death, did you know that there's more to that verse? And many of you will know it already. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's the same thing Paul is teaching here in Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Eternal life, peace with God instead of death from Him, rescue, verse 4, from this present evil age, come to us from Jesus who gave Himself for our sins. They come to us as a gift from Jesus and from God The Father as well, our God and Father, Paul calls him, whose will it was, verse 4, that Jesus come and die for sinners. And so I ask you this morning, are you in need of grace? Do you pant for peace with God? Do the burden of your sins weigh you down? Do you long for rescue from this present evil age with all of its sin, including your own, with all of its looming darkness, with our culture seemingly in moral sunset? Are you longing to be set free? Listen to what Paul says about where the relief you need comes from. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And the conclusion in verse 5 is, to God be the glory. According to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen.
This is the genius of the Christian faith here in verse 5, isn't it? The manner of our salvation is designed so as to honor and magnify God, not man. That's what the Galatians had so wrong. They started to believe in a gospel that lifted up man and what man could do rather than what God has done in Christ. The manner of our salvation is designed to honor and magnify God, not us. I can't look in the mirror and say, well, I'm so glad I will someday be rescuing myself from this present evil age. And you can't look in the mirror and exclaim, I'm so glad that I've inched my way, worked my way, trudged my way into peace with God. No. Grace and peace come from Him, verse 3. Rescue from this evil age comes from Him, verse 4. And so to Him be the glory forevermore. Amen.